with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to the most recent episode of Phronesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Today, I am honored to have Dr. Bill Torbert. He is currently a founding board member of the Global Leadership Associates and Amara Collaborative, as well as a leadership professor emeritus at Boston College. Recent recognitions that he has received, he has been named the Outstanding Scholar from the Western Academy of Management. Uh, His republication of the 2005 HBR article, Seven Transformations of Leadership, is one of Harvard Business Review's top 10 leadership reads ever. Uh, He's been honored by the Center for Creative Leadership with the Walter F. Ulmer Jr. Award for Career Contributions to Applied Leadership Research. And in 2014, he received the Chris Argerus Career Achievement Award from the Academy of Management. Pretty incredible. Between 78 and 2008, Torbert served first as BC's Carroll School Graduate Dean and later as Director of the PhD Program in Organizational Transformation. The MBA program rising from below the top 100 to 25th nationally during his deanship. Within the Academy of Management, he served as chair for the Organization Development and Change Division, and he served on the board of the Organization Behavior Teaching Society. I have also served on that board, sir. He has served on uh, the editorial boards of countless journals. He's written books. You may know Action Inquiry, The Secret of Timely and Transforming Leadership, and his most recent book, Numbskull in the Theater of Inquiry. 
Bill is the author of the Global Leadership Profile, A Measure of Leaders' Developmental Action Logic and Relative Capacity to Exercise Mutually Transforming Power in Organizational Settings. He is also the founder of an action research process exercised in real-time, everyday life called Collaborative Developmental Action Inquiry. Torbert received a BA in political science and economics and a PhD in administrative sciences, both from Yale, holding a Danforth graduate fellowship during his graduate years. He's taught at Yale, SMU. He has taught at Harvard and Boston College. Most of all, Bill has great pleasure and pride, not to mention occasional pain, in the ongoing development of his closest friends and colleagues, of his three sons, Michael, Patrick, and Benjamin, and of their children. So he's a grandfather. Bill, what have we left out? This is the story of you, sir. (laughs) Well, it's a skeletal story of me. It doesn't quite suggest all of the bumps and pains and bruises and uh, setbacks that uh, caused me to have to develop some theories about what was going on in the hope of helping myself be a little bit more competent. Bill, I'm very, very excited for this conversation today because it's timely. And I'm actually working on a paper right now. We are shooting big for some some world-class management education journals. And this conversation could not have come at a better time. Your work over the years has focused uh, squarely in many ways around the adult development work. And I had a, a guest, Bruce Avolio, on uh, probably 15 episodes ago, and, and I've always respected his work and followed his work throughout the years. And he said something to this effect. He said, what I would consider maybe still the holy grail around leadership development is our perspective taking capacity. And for me, this kind of aligns us square into this space of adult development theory. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I'd love to hear your perspective. Am I aligned when I kind of make those connections between those two, between those that quote and then the adult development literature? Definitely, I would say. I mean, in a sense, the notion of stages of development or developmental action logics are about the different kinds of perspectives we can take and highlighting the degree to which the early action logics Uh, are perspectives that have us. We are not aware that we are taking a perspective. We think we're just seeing reality. And the later action logics where we recognize that we and other people are taking perspectives, and of course, not everybody has the same perspective, and therefore, a key element of leadership is both helping people to develop to the point where they recognize that so they can deal better with people who are taking different perspectives, and also helping people to uh, transform and therefore be able to act in a more appropriate way in whatever context they are, whatever culture, because culture is a perspective on reality also, an organizational culture. So one suddenly realizes a lot more of the variables that are causing events to happen as they are, and one becomes more sensitive And it's only through the development of later action logics that one realizes, hey, there is something about timely action. And just knowing things, theory or facts or the context, none of that gives you the key to what timely action right now would be. Yes, yes. Part of it is the capacity to be able to recognize yourself as taking a perspective right now in the moment and therefore opening up the possibility of taking a different perspective 
or checking with other people's perspective, which will lead to more timely action. Yes. Well, in, in a blog post on your website, you, you really explore this notion between vertical and horizontal development. Would you talk a little bit about that? I think listeners will find that fascinating. Right. Yeah. The idea is that most of our learning and teaching and action uh, is conducted on a horizontal plane. Your, your overall perspective is taken for granted, and you're just trying to learn more or less specific things and specific theories without challenging your current uh, perspective. And of course, each time we enter a new perspective, there's an enormous amount of horizontal learning to do about how the world looks and how we can act through this new perspective. So horizontal learning is absolutely a key element of learning, but it isn't the most fundamental kind of learning. The most fundamental and the least often practiced in schools and organizations is vertical learning. Vertical meaning that you, on the, has a number of meanings, but one of the meanings is that you, each time you change perspective, you get to a kind of higher place where you see what you did before in different ways and have access to new possible actions. But again, when you start into that new action logic, you don't know uh, all the practical details about how to uh, be competent in it. Yes. So you need to become competent before you can really successfully transform into a later action logic, which we both transcends and includes all that you have gone through before. Now, one of the tricky things about this vertical idea is that people often initially think of it only in upward going verticality. Yes. Uh, but just as important is downward going verticality. Talk about meaning, that. Yeah. Meaning that um, in order to act in a timely way, you have to be aware of how you're acting. That is, you have to have an awareness of how your body is working. What is your tone of voice right now? Um, are you flapping your hands around in the air? And is that <laughs> useful to the conversation? <laughs> and so that requires an, a body-based awareness, which obviously has a quality of going down from head into body. And so if one is only going up, one becomes increasingly abstract and probably more imprisoned in language and less likely to be, one can be, be extremely incompetent because one hasn't filled in the horizontal learning that was needed. Bill, you made me, as, as you were speaking and listening, I was reflecting even on my own journey, horizontal or, or vertical, and I reflected on, I, I did my PhD in my mid-20s. And I would love to experience that four years again in my late 40s, where I am now, because it would probably be a fundamentally different learning experience, right? Right. I also took my PhD in my early 20s, but I learned so much at that time that I, I certainly wouldn't want to give that up in exchange for a later one, but yeah. maybe, we'll add a, maybe I should have added a later one. Uh, but, well, you know. You know, uh, on the same line line of conversation, I, I love how you kind of communicated this. The vertical is not just up; it's both. There was an article, Kuhnert and Lewis, in the late '80s. It was about it was it was connecting some of the work of Robert Keegan to transformational leadership, and there was a suggestion that was made, or maybe this was an article by Avolio and Gibbons, but they suggested in there that you know someone who's working out of one of these quote unquote higher levels may struggle to connect with 
factions of people who are not working at that same level. So, you know, as the lore goes, you had a, an Abraham Lincoln who could really communicate at multiple levels and help multiple levels of individuals understand a complex concept because he would equate it to what it's like on, on the farm, so to speak, mm-hmm. and communicating in a way where we don't lose people or sound overly ethereal, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Right. We need to give concrete illustrations of what we're talking about as much as we need theoretical statements of what we're talking about. Uh, you know, I did a research project years ago over a period of a decade in which we found that of 10 CEOs leading organizations uh, of up to 1,000 people, in other words, not huge Fortune 500 organizations, uh, that only the trans, the uh, the executives that were at the transforming action logic successfully, in every case, helped their organization transform, which included getting bigger market share and more profits, sort of down-to-earth things, as well as uh, more sophisticated ways of making decisions and uh, being more inquiring. But you know, some people interpreted that to mean, oh, okay, if I become, if I move to the transforming action logic, I'll be successful as a CEO. But that's not what the research shows. What it shows is if people had already chosen you based on your practical knowledge of the that organization and context to be CEO, then if you are at the transforming action logic, you're going to be able to uh, help transform. So in other words, you need the horizontal knowledge of the context uh, as well as the vertical knowledge of what is the transforming action logic like to be able to help people and organizations to transform. Well, that's where I was going to go next is what is your thinking on this statement? And I, I know that this may not be an accurate statement, that an individual at one of the higher levels, quote unquote, of their action logic or developmental level will be a more successful leader. How do you respond to that hypothesis? Is it what you just said? Right. I mean, what I just said is relevant to it, because if we took a uh, sort of random sample of people at each of the different action logics, we would find plenty of people at the transforming action logic who are not good leaders because they focus their attention on some other part of the world, like art, let's say, and they may have a transforming capacity Uh, in the realm that they have chosen to focus on, but not have a transformational capacity in others. Yes, And that's part of the challenge at each later action logic. There's a much broader array of horizontal learning that's necessary before one can be considered competent in it. So if you haven't spent some years exercising organizational leadership, as well as developing to later action logics, then you're not going to be good at leadership necessarily. Well, and you've spent decades exploring this whole notion of action inquiry. Would you give a quick synopsis of that? And then let's start kind of transitioning a little bit into some of that work. Okay, well, let's see. Uh, You know, as the two words suggest, action inquiry puts together what we normally think of as opposites. We think of the inquiry occurring in ivory tower universities and action occurring in the U S Senate and house and being messy. Yes. And I'm saying that 
That's true. For the last 500 years, we've separated action from inquiry in order to get more objective results in our inquiry. But now we have to recognize that that is only one stage along the way. And in fact, action and inquiry need to be put together and are put together every time we're acting even if we don't think we're inquiring, even if we're sure that what we're doing is right, we're going to get feedback that may tell us the opposite. And uh, so the idea is, well, it'd be it'd be more functional if we recognized that we are both acting and inquiring at the same time. Well, and if you would, for listeners, just distinguish the single loop, double loop, triple loop, if you would. That would be wonderful. <laughs> That's funny because I was saying, oh, you interrupted me just before I got to talking about single, double, and triple loop learning. So <laughs> perfect timing. Here we go. We're on the same, we're on the same wavelength. Um, yes. Yeah, so in real life, you can receive different types of feedback. And it's hard for people to receive any of these types of feedback because we like to think that we know what we're doing and that therefore we're going to be right and we're going to be successful. So it's a little painful to receive any of these up until you get to the point where you recognize, well, if I don't accept some feedback, I'm never going to know whether I I reached uh, my intended goal, which is what the achiever action logic gets good at. It gets good at getting single loop feedback negative feedback, so to speak, feedback, corrective feedback, because it helps you get to your goal. But there's also double and triple loop feedback. And these are much harder to uh, accept, especially at the early stages, because they ask you to reconsider the perspective that you're taking on the situation. And you're often very closely married to your perspective. You don't, it's not, you feel like, well, that would destroy me if I did that. If I admitted a mistake to my senior team, it would ruin my authority. And then when they're finally persuaded to take the chance and share something vulnerable, it turns out it has exactly the opposite effect, that people for the first time begin to trust them, that they're willing to say what's really going on and see that they're vulnerable and would accept help and makes other people willing to be vulnerable on the team. So double loop feedback becomes increasingly prized in the later action logics. And then even later than that comes the possibility of triple loop feedback. And that's that's feedback that actually magnetizes you in the moment that you become aware that you're different from who you believed you were. And it's as being shown right now, I once had a friend say, Bill, I I don't think I can trust you. Sometimes you seem to be a kind of practical businessman. And other times you seem to be a kind of religious monk. (laughs) And I thought, well, just a minute, I do want to be both of those things. What's wrong with that? Um, But then I realized, well, no, he's saying that sometimes you're one and sometimes you're other and you want to be both at once. So you've got a long way to go. I've never forgotten that piece of feedback. So that's that's a, like a life-influencing piece of feedback that reminds me, which one are you right now, Bill? Or are you, in <laughs> fact, exercising both a kind of practical action outwards and a kind of inquiry inwards at the same time? Yeah. So that triple loop feedback is especially mysterious, rare, and hard to offer and hard to accept uh, sometimes. 
Can you think of another example of the triple loop feedback that you've come across along the way, either personally or someone else has shared with you? I find this fascinating. Uh, I've never heard of the concept. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, talked about a, a fair amount now in the literature, but I'm not sure that anybody understands it in my way. <laughs> well, so um, uh, another way of talking about triple loop feedback is that when you're trying to figure out what to do, I have found that just trying to plan, say, a meeting, I've got a meeting in two days, and what am I going to make, what's the agenda going to be, and if I go in a, in a thoughtful way trying to plan it, I often feel I'm not very motivated, and I don't have good ideas, and if instead I stop and meditate for a while, and I start to just allow thoughts to rain down through me, not accepting any of them as the solution to my problem or to my agenda. But gradually, if I'm if I don't bite too quickly, there comes some image that just hits the spot in terms of motivating me to do the meeting, making me realize really what the blood and guts purpose of the meeting is, uh, and therefore helping me to structure the meeting in a way that'll make that come true, that'll make that little dream I've had um, come true. So in that case, I'm opening myself first to double loop feedback by, by stopping just working with my brain and inviting myself to listen to all the four, what I call the four territories of experience the outside world, my own action, my thinking, and then a post-cognitive awareness that can take in all of the three others and allow this kind of free thinking to occur and free feeling. Um, so that's a whole nother way of trying to convey uh, what triple loop feedback is. How long did it take you to come to the conclusion that that's what works for you? That's a lot of action inquiry over the decades, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I was, um, you know, after graduating from college, I not only did doctoral work, which played a role in, in helping me to come to these ideas, but I also joined a spiritual group called the Gurdjieff Work, which I participated directly in for 25 years. So I was trying to learn how to meditate and how to and what it meant and it was not a, until i was 50 i think about 50 that i actually developed the idea of first second and third person research i'd been doing it for years but to give it a name to understand it to be able to see the relationship between those three types of research uh, which are usually viewed as incongruent with one another. And again, another way of talking about action inquiry is that it's it's a way of uniting third-person so-called objective knowledge, first-person subjective awareness, and second-person inquiry that gives you feedback in your particular time and place. So instead of regarding those three as, as opposites of one another and as hostile, the whole idea is to bring them together. Yes, it took years. I mean, I, 
I, I took on some really challenging leadership roles very early on at, at the Yale Upward Bound program while I was in my graduate school. And I was studying me and that for my dissertation. And then I had the bump where my faculty refused after two and a half years of work to allow me to write my dissertation about that because they said, how can the guy who was running the program do the research on it? Wow. can't help but be biased. I was saying, but I'm just, this is exactly what I'm trying to discover is, is whether this is possible and how it is possible. But um, they weren't listening to me. And, <laughs> um, so I had to do an entirely different dissertation, which turned out to be wonderful because I learned a lot more from the other. I wrote a book about the program. And so I got two books out of my graduate work rather than one. So ha ha on them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Well, let's, so we're kind of moving into, in some ways, the, the most recent book, which you say is you're going to be your last. And yes. in this book, Numbskull in the Theater of Inquiry, you explore some of these adventures over the course of your life. And some of the section titles I, I absolutely loved, and I said this to you before we went on air, but but titles like Born Again and Again and Again, and Wondering in Action, Communities of Inquiry, Stranger and Stranger. So you bring me in as a reader in a very, very nice way to want to learn a little bit more. So talk about some reflections on this work. What were some highlights for you? Mm. Tangling with Texans. Oh, that was another tangling. one that caught my eye. I loved it. Right. Right. <laughs> Winning some and losing some. I think. Uh, although we mostly lost. One thing was that I felt I had a kind of obligation to write a relatively autobiographical book because I had asked my students for decades to write developmental autobiographies. Only had to be 10 pages long, but some wrote as many as 200, astonishingly enough. And I would say, write your, your story once, just kind of the way it happened, the way you remember it, and then ask yourself whether developmental theory applies to it or reveals anything about it. This turned out to be a very, very eye-opening exercise for them and help them to work with, because of course, we've all been through all the early action logics that other people in the world are mostly in. So if we review our own life, we'll become more compassionate for people who are currently working out of, living out of those action logics. And I thought, well, I'd better, I'd better try that myself. So I started by writing the autobiography. When I Actually, when I started writing the autobiography, I didn't even have the idea of making it a developmental autobiography. I just thought I had some obligation to try to trace my own learnings of, of these ideas. But gradually, as, as I wrote the book, I realized, oh my gosh, my life, in fact, does follow these action logics that I only discovered later in life. So, you know, I thought it was one good way of illustrating and bringing people in to look at their own development. So that's part of the purpose of the book is, is to invite people to get to know something about developmental theory by, by looking at a person's life rather than at a whole lot of theoretical talk. Love it. And then I put, you know, my, my friend said to me, yeah, but you, you've got um, to put in something about the theory. 
Um, and so there are endnotes to each chapter, which were actually written with my closest uh, friends. And one finds in those endnotes occasions when they're giving me feedback uh, that they don't like what I did at that point, or <laughs> they don't think that that thing worked and I didn't quite admit it and so <laughs> forth. So I wanted to include other voices in the book, the second person voices. And then I wanted to show how it all fits together systematically. And all that is put into the appendices. Uh, my ho- And the book, you know, can really be, there's even a postscript, which has three stories by a young Iranian woman uh, to show a young woman writing about her own life and development, not just an old white guy. So people can start in any of those places in the book. And as I say, treat the book as an action inquiry process. Don't just follow the leader and read page one and then page two, but look at the table of contents, see what excites you, whether it be born again and again and again, which of course is a reference to the developmental ideas of uh, transforming from one perspective or action logic to another. My hope in the end is that it not only speaks to people in leadership fields and organization development, but that it finally speaks to social scientists. Because over my whole career, even though I published a lot about this way of what I formally call collaborative developmental action inquiry, very few social scientists in management or education or elsewhere, uh, have really encountered my work. And so uh, my hope is that this book introduces me to that part of the world, but I don't really have any way of uh, getting them to read it other than perhaps podcasts like this. So here I am on my marketing (laughs) tour uh, of my latest book. (laughs) We'll talk a little bit about that because it sounds like from from the very beginning, the writing of your dissertation and and throughout your career, you've been pushing, pulling, scratching, working to influence the academy to think about some of these things in different ways. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, yeah, it's uh, interesting to, as you bring it up now this way, uh, one of the things that is a kind of highlight of the book, you might say, is my relationship with the very well-known scholar practitioner, Chris Ardris, whom I met when I was an undergraduate and then took as my advisor in graduate school and then became a colleague of at Harvard later on. And then he became very close to Don Schoen at MIT. And I also got to know Don very well. And as my work I mean, I learned an enormous amount from both of them and would never have been able to do anything I've done without their help. So I'm enormously grateful for that. But by the time I'd gotten to Harvard, I was beginning to express how my work was also different from theirs. And I didn't even realize at the time how different it would seem to them. I didn't, since I knew them both personally, I I knew that they did first-person and second-person research on themselves in groups and meetings and classes. But what I didn't uh, really sufficiently appreciate was the fact that both of their their writings, their books, remained resolutely third-person. So although Chris would talk a lot about his interventions in organizations, and he would have transcriptions of his behavior and other people's behavior, but it would be the researcher 
colon says this. He would never talk in the first person. When, when I wrote my book, The Power of Balance, Transforming Self, Society, and Social Science Inquiry, they were both shocked by it because it had a middle section that was autobiographical, trying to wow. show how I myself was trying to uh, approach these and apply these concepts. And um, I had asked Don to write a foreword, and he said yes, but he delayed and delayed and delayed. And he finally, on the last day when it could have been submitted, uh, or we would have published without his uh, foreword, he submitted it. And the he submitted it to the publisher, not to me. And the publisher immediately faxed it to me. This was before the days of email. And I said, you should not publish this. He's, this is an incredible attack on your work. Wow. And I read it. And it was a very artful and a very strong. It, was, it had praise, but it also uh, was uniquely critical for a foreword. The second sentence was, this is a document of shocking grandiosity. Wow. Uh, uh, so he had other criticisms and so forth, but I called him up and uh, said, Don, I'd just like to ask if you would change two words in this review. And the first one is grandiosity. After all, I think I've shown, in fact, in the book that uh, I'm very vulnerable to feedback and very open about it and so forth. And he said, well, Bill, grandiose only means generous. And I said, <laughs> that may have been true in the Greek, uh, but I have the dictionary open on my lap here. And the first three meanings of grandiosity are like pretentious and something and something and something. They're all negative. Yeah. Uh, so he he finally went back and changed the sentence a little bit, uh, but not very much. That, you know, I gradually began to learn that my attempt to, um, to integrate first-person, second-person, and third-person inquiry and action was really different from what they were after. It came from a different perspective than, than there. They had both recognized the importance of perspectives, but they hadn't fully engaged, in my view, in what I call the transforming action logic, yeah. um, which demands that the person be vulnerable to double-loop feedback if they're going to be successful at giving double-loop feedback, because yeah. uh, otherwise the double-loop feedback will simply seem attacking. And uh, if they can demonstrate vulnerability, then that will help the other person to open up in that way. So that shows, uh, you know, I sort of lost my primary senior advisors who had done a great, great deal for me. They were no longer, uh, in fact, Chris took, uh, I started out by calling Action Inquiry, Action Science. Then he wrote a book, which he named Action Science and didn't recognize my uh, initial development of that idea, nor the fact that what he meant by it was quite different from what I meant by it, which would have created an interesting conversation uh, in the field. So uh, one of the things I realized was it's better to, call, it, this is great feedback. I'd rather call it action inquiry because action science sounds too much like yeah. the current social science. And I want to say something that that is relevant to personal inquiry as well as scientific inquiry. I have such a great respect for your willingness to push those boundaries 
to help us better understand. And I don't know that any any of this has been done in the service, at least from my uh, reading of your work and from your tone in this conversation, that I have found truth, quote unquote. It's let's explore other perspectives. Let's explore other avenues. Let's explore other ways of thinking about some of these things to see if we can get further, right? Mm. Which is which is inquiry, right? Right. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. It's it's probably more fundamental inquiry than yes. um, most people are have bargained for, shall we say. Um, and it goes very deeply to the uh, center of or core or origin of the very ontology that is taken for granted in the Western uh, world, namely mm. that uh, reality consists of empirical things in the real world, and it consists of mental maps of those things. So, uh, and then some people say, well, only the re- only the empirical reality is real, and when we get enough neuroscience, we'll explain consciousness by describing the brain. And other people who are idealists say only consciousness is real, and even the idea of materiality is a construct of our imagination. And I'm saying, well, that's just two out of the four fundamental parts of reality. Uh, there's also uh, your own active awareness of your body, which is neither an empirical awareness nor an idea. And there's a kind of consciousness that rises above thought and uh, can enter, can watch thought occurring within one. Uh, and so in order to, to know the world and act in the world, you need to recognize the flow up and down these four different steps in the ladder of reality. But, you know, it's taken me years and years and years. I've only really, I don't even say it quite that way in the book. I talk about the four territories of experience, but uh, I now have this additional way of trying to differentiate typical science and philosophy in the West and a fuller contact with reality that I think the four territories help us to uh, recognize. I love that phrasing. You may have just named the title of the episode, a fuller contact with reality, mm. right? Full, fullness, the whole, yeah. the system, yeah. the larger yeah. perspective that helps us better understand whatever the phenomenon is. And so fascinating, <laughs> right? It just is. And I love that this work really integrates so many different dimensions of your work and of you you're modeling everything that you have put forth throughout your career. Would you agree with that statement? Well, that's certainly my attempt. Yes. (laughs) I I don't, right. I don't just want to talk about it. I want to display it to, to, as we talked earlier about um, giving concrete examples, not just theory and, and yeah. And in a way that allows the reader to explore and, and follow their own path you know, I don't know if you noticed at the beginning, I have an unusual five different, what do you call them, epigraphs, uh, little little uh, quotes from other writers. And one is from uh, Lao Tzu uh, saying that the path you can follow is not the real path. It's a wonderful, <laughs> ironic statement. But I mean, that yes, I've laid out a path in a certain sense, 
but you've got to climb the mountain yourself and you can't just you can't just follow my path by by reading the ideas and taking them into your head that uh, you're not getting to where I'm going if that's how you treat it but that that curiosity just shines through in such a beautiful way because I think individuals that have that way of being, that curious way of being. Well, why am I, why is this triggering me? Why am I experiencing this this way? Why are they experiencing me this way? Why are we not getting the traction that we would hope to achieve by this point? I mean, all of that is a way of being in that questioning. It's just, in my mind, I find it incredibly energizing because the world around us is a case study, not only ourselves as actors in the world, but uh, the world itself, as we watch all of this play out, uh, in our families, we can go through the different levels. There's just a world of exploration embedded in our day-to-day lives that keeps my mind keeps my mind cooking. <laughs> right when you when you more or less continually work at having a sort of present-centered awareness, you realize that most of the time you could do the the particular thing you're trying to do in different ways. And so even kind of mundane activities, uh, you know, I find very often I sit at the computer and I, I suddenly realized that while I started exciting about what I was doing, I'm now pushing it. I'm, I'm no longer happy with it. I'm just feeling like I ought to get, I ought to finish something. And now I just let that go. I get up, I walk away from it. Yep. Maybe just for 90 seconds, but it changes, you know, I shake it out and sit down again and I can approach it new. But most of the time we live in a, a kind of cavern that doesn't include those perspectives on ourselves at the same time. Well, Bill, as we wind down for today, I, again, can't thank you enough for your time. Would you be willing to share some some contemporary learning resources? Maybe it's something you've watched. Maybe it's something you've you've streamed, it could be something you've read recently that you think listeners would be interested in knowing about? Great, great question. One thing that comes to mind that relates very closely to what we've been talking about is this book called How to Change Your Mind Mm. by Michael Pollan. And uh, Michael Pollan's quite famous for books he's written about vegetables and potatoes and mushrooms and things. And in this book, he writes about the history of psychedelic research. And toward the end of the book, he begins experimenting with psychedelic research himself, different modes, working with different shamans and so forth. But it's a it's a very balanced, Western, uh, readable book, which goes into uh, wild explorations. Uh, so that might be, uh, it's, it's a rather long book, but it's not hard to read because awesome. it's a story of his own adventure. Now, is this the gentleman who's at Johns Hopkins by chance? No, he's not at a university. Okay. Okay. Because yeah. they're, they're now, you know, there, there are laboratories that have been yes. approved to really start doing research again right. on the benefits of, of some of these substances on depression or PTSD. Right. So again, he talks about that research at Johns Hopkins and other places. So yes, it has become legal and fascinating to people now. Mm-hmm. To, to try to go back to that, which cut off for 40 years by the war on drugs. Well, it's another great example of, to your point right there, cut off. By no means am I promoting the use of, of hard narcotics, 
but it's interesting how uh, certain policies or, or, or perspectives can cut off something that could be potentially beneficial or helpful to factions of people for sure. I will add that into the show notes. Anything else come to mind that's caught your eye? No, other than you yourself. And I want to thank you so much for your way of conducting the interview. Uh, that's made it a special pleasure. Oh, well, Bill, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for your good work. For listeners, you can find the link directly to Amazon, Numskull in the Theater of Inquiry. And I hope you pick that up. And I hope you engage in that learning. And as, as Bill beautifully said, chart that path for yourself. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. I could listen to Dr. Torbert speak for hours and plan to in 2022 as I sign up for some of the workshops that uh, he and some associates have available. And I will put some links to those in the show notes. You know, whether it's vertical or horizontal development, whether it's single, double, or triple loop learning. It might just be his concept of integrating first, second, and third person action inquiry. And these are ideas that will transform social science. And this is an individual who for decades has been engaged in that work. Ultimately, the work of helping to better prepare individuals to be successful when assuming formal or informal roles of leadership. And uh, Bill, I can't thank you enough for being with me and having that incredible conversation for the work that you do and the time that you have put in to help our field advance. Take care, everyone. If you've made it this far, you are in, and I appreciate that very much. Have a wonderful day. Do good work out there and be well. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.